All right, well, Happy New Year to everybody. First Wednesday of the New Year. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 5? Now, we saw how that God had commissioned Moses to go to Pharaoh and uh, to tell him to let God's people go. Initially, uh, on a three-day journey into the wilderness that they might sacrifice to the Lord. Let's back up to verse uh, 27 of chapter 4 to get a run uh, on tonight's study. But the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him on the mountain of God and kissed him. Verse 29, Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spoke, to all, spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. So he did the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. Chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Uh, it's kind of interesting to me how matter-of-factly the text says Moses got an audience with Pharaoh. All right, uh, And no doubt the reason was because he grew up with this man. Of course, Pharaoh's dad hated Moses because Moses had killed an Egyptian 40 years earlier. Remember that? Thinking that the time had come for him to be the deliverer. He had always believed God had raised them up to be, rushing the program of God. But uh, he uh, killed an Egyptian who was, who was persecuting another Hebrew. And the thing was, uh, became known. And uh, so uh, Pharaoh uh, hated Moses and was uh, out to kill him. So Moses took off and fled down to the area of Midian where he spent the last 40 years uh, shepherding Jethro's sheep and so on. But um, he had no doubt grown up with this man who was now on the throne. In fact, in some ways, Moses was competing with this guy to be the next Pharaoh. Of course, that wasn't God's plan for Moses. And so he uh, was able to get an audience right away with Pharaoh. And this is in verse 2. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. Now, Pharaoh's arrogant question, Who is the Lord that I should you know, obey his voice, was rooted in the belief back then that the strongest nations had the strongest gods. And Pharaoh was... Here's what he's thinking. Here's what he's saying. I'm, a, I'm the leader of the strongest nation on earth. Uh, why should I listen to the God of Hebrew slaves? If he's not strong enough to keep his followers out of slavery, he's not strong enough for me to worry about him, so I'm not going to listen to what he wants. That's, you can see where he's coming from. If that's your belief system where the strongest nations obviously worship the strongest gods, and here you've got a group of slaves that want to go into the wilderness to sacrifice to their god, but their God can't even keep them out of slavery. Pharaoh think, is thinking to himself, there's no God for me to worry about. Okay, so verse 3. So they said, the God of the Hebrews is sent, uh, has met with us. Please, let us go three days journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. So Moses is saying to Pharaoh, listen, you've got to understand this is serious stuff here. Our God has commanded us to go three days into the wilderness to sacrifice and to worship him. If we don't do it, he's going to judge us. 
and he may wipe us out, and you don't really want that since we're your workforce, is the idea, all right? Verse 4, Then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. And Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are many now, and you make them rest from their labor. Uh, Pharaoh was basically saying that the Hebrews had multiplied so much that they had become the, the entire workforce of the land of Egypt. Uh, they were all enslaved, and they were being used now to build the economy of Egypt. And Pharaoh was like, look, you Hebrews are really the backbone of our economy. I can't let you go into the wilderness to sacrifice to some, some god of Hebrew slaves. You need to get back to work. Otherwise, you know, the whole land is going to suffer is the idea. Now, there's a couple of things about the Pharaohs of Egypt we need to kind of stop and just understand before we move on. First of all, the Pharaoh was an absolute monarch whose power and authority was supreme. He answered to nobody. He did whatever he wanted. Now, of course, uh, succeeding world powers, and I'm thinking of uh, the Medes and the Persians, they had more of a kind of a democratic form of government. They, uh, the leaders couldn't just do whatever they wanted. They had to answer to certain people and all. But back in Egypt, the Pharaoh was pretty much in charge of everything. everything. Nobody questioned him. Nobody challenged him. He could do whatever he wanted to do. Number two, the Pharaohs, and this goes along with the first one, the Pharaohs were said to be the children of the sun god and therefore gods themselves. In fact, it was believed that the Pharaohs were best friends with the gods of Egypt. And in fact, they would often go into their temples and sit with the gods to be worshipped alongside of them. So you can understand from the belief system of, of Egypt that the pharaohs were put on a very high pedestal, again, looked upon as gods themselves. And that's why they answered to nobody. Their power was supreme. You didn't question a god. All right, They did pretty much what they wanted. Now, Moses understood all that. I mean, he grew up in the courts of, of Egypt. He understood how the people looked at the pharaohs. But he also knew the pharaoh firsthand. And he knew that the pharaoh was just a man. All right? Just a man. And uh, as such, he was no match for the God of Israel, as Pharaoh was about to find out. So verse 6, So the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, You shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. And you shall lay on them the quota of bricks which they made before. You shall not reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry out, saying, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let more work be laid on the men, that they may labor in it, and let them not regard false words. So Pharaoh says, Look, I know what the problem is. They haven't got enough work. So what they need to do now is they don't give them any more straw. Let them get their own straw and don't reduce the quota of bricks that they were making before. Let it be the same. Now, one historian, you know, say, well, why was straw so important in the making of bricks? Well, I did a little digging. One historian said chopped straw was mixed with, was mixed in with the clay to make the bricks more pliable and stronger by first binding the clay together. And then as the straw decayed, it released an acid called humic acid, end quote. And from what I've been able to understand, when this acid, when the straw began to decay in these bricks, this acid actually worked to make the bricks even stronger. So that's why it was so important. Verse 10, 
And the taskmasters of the people and their officers went out and spoke to the people, saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go get yourself straw where you can find it. Yet none of your work will be reduced. So the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw, and the taskmasters forced them to hurry, saying, Fulfill your work, your daily quota, as when there was straw. Now, it's interesting, archaeologists have actually confirmed this, because in various cities, in the cities that we know where the Hebrews were working primarily to build back in those days, uh, they have found structures where the lower levels of brick had cut straw, as if, you know, Pharaoh uh, had uh, people cutting straw, giving it to the Hebrew slaves to make brick. Uh, then, according in, with regard to what we're seeing now, then as it goes up uh, uh, levels, you find that the bricks contain straw, stubble, and uh, sometimes twigs, whatever they could find, just to mix in. Okay, no more cut straw, just kind of odds and ends, whatever they could find laying on the ground. And you get up into the very high levels, and sometimes there was no straw at all, just the, the mud bricks, okay, indicating that they were having trouble getting enough straw to make the bricks, and finally uh, had given up for the most part and just kept making the bricks without the straw. So interesting archaeological evidence confirming the, uh, the story here. Verse 14, Also the officers of the children of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not fulfilled your task in making brick both yesterday and today as before? So initially, they tried to do it the right way, but they just couldn't keep up. And so the leaders of the Hebrew slaves, the ones in charge, were beaten. Verse 15, Then the officers of the children of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, Why are you dealing thus with your servants? There is no straw given to your servants, and they say to us, Make brick. And indeed your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, Pharaoh did, You are idle idol. Therefore, you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Therefore, go now and work, for no straw shall be given you, yet you shall deliver the quota of bricks. And the officers of the children of Israel saw that they were in trouble after it was said, you shall not reduce any bricks from your daily quota. Then as they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron, who stood there to meet them. And they said to them, Let the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Initially, the children of Israel were very enthusiastic about the prospect of Moses delivering them out of the bondage of Egypt. I don't know what they thought. I don't know if they thought this was going to be a quick and easy process. All right. But now, Pharaoh doesn't think it's such a great idea. He resists it and counters by saying, well, obviously you've got too much time on your hands, so now you're going to have to gather your own straw and make the same quota of bricks, and so on. And he began to beat, you know, the people because they weren't keeping up with the quota. And um, now the people begin to complain and turn on Moses. Hey, it was a great idea. Initially, God has sent you to deliver us. Great. Let's go. Well, it's a little matter of Pharaoh we ought to deal with first. He goes into Pharaoh. Pharaoh doesn't think it's such a great idea. He begins to oppress the people even more. And so what do the people do? They turn on Moses and Aaron and begin to really take it out on them. Guys, let me just say this, because this is the, really the lesson I see in this. 
Anything God leads you to do, Satan is going to oppose. And the greater the work God's calling you to do, the more the opposition. The more the opposition. One lesson we can learn from this is when it comes to being set free from a bondage, and we would think of just in our culture, the different things people are in bondage to, alcohol, drugs, cigarettes, and so on. Look, one of the lessons is when it, when it comes to being set free from any area of, of bondage or slavery that you're dealing with, it's not going to always be an easy road. Now, sometimes it is. We've all heard the stories. In fact, when I first got saved, I was smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. And I remember getting saved and saying, Lord, please, I don't want to do this anymore. And God immediately took the desire away. I never even had uh, a craving. Took it away. I've had people tell me that, yeah, the same thing happened to me with alcohol. I was a heavy alcoholic. I received Christ. I knelt and said, God, deliver me from this horrible stuff. And I got up off my knees and I didn't, haven't touched a drink since. I remember in the early days of Calvary Chapel, a lot of these hippie kids were on heroin. And they got saved and uh, prayed that God would deliver them. And there was more than a few stories of how God delivered these kids from heroin without a single withdrawal. And then later on, a few months down the road, when some of them backslid and decided to shoot up with the same amount of heroin they had been using before they got saved, they overdosed. Because God had cleansed their systems so much of this poison. So we know from various people that sometimes when we pray and ask God to deliver us from a bondage that we're dealing with, sometimes he is so gracious, he just takes it away. We don't even have to try. But I think for a lot of people, it's not that easy. Sometimes, for whatever reason, God doesn't make it easy. No doubt to keep us on our knees, to keep us drawing close to him, to keep us in a place where we're depending on him to give us that victory. And if you continue to seek the Lord, if you continue to, to come before him and say, Lord, I need your grace, I need your, I can't do it. I'm convinced God will eventually deliver you from whatever it is you are struggling with. But it isn't always an easy thing. And here, God had fully intended to deliver these people from the bondage of Egypt, but it was going to take some time, time that God was going to use to show himself mighty uh, to not only the Egyptians, but also to the whole world. Just remember this. What we're talking about here falls into the category of spiritual warfare. That's what we're talking about. Anything God calls you to do, Satan's going to oppose spiritual warfare. And Satan uses things like alcohol and drugs to gain a foothold in people's lives. Once he's got that foothold, he will use that foothold or beachhead then to increase his influence over their life by bringing them into more areas of bondage. And when God starts to work in their hearts to set them free, Satan knows what's going on, and he will fight tooth and nail because he does not want to relinquish territory that he has taken. Okay, He doesn't want to release a life that he has put into bondage, a life that is serving him. That's what spiritual warfare is all about, seeing the captive set free. And that's what we're up against, guys, as believers. Keep that in mind. All right, Keep that in It's warfare. But the problem with a lot of Christians today is they want victory without a fight and blessings without sacrifice. And you know what? You can't have it that way. Anything that God is wanting to use you for, anything worthwhile in ministry, is going to require a fight, spiritual warfare. Look, here's the rule. There is no spiritual progress without spiritual warfare. And as the old saying goes, war is hell, right? When you're a Christian, that's literally true. 
because we are opposed by the forces of hell. And I'm sure if we had time to go around the room tonight, uh, we could find many of you who are being oppressed, who are being, you know, serving the Lord, but it's so difficult at times, you feel so oppressed. It's warfare. It's warfare. Or you start having victory in one area, and all of a sudden an old area of the flesh that you had conquered seems to want to rise up. And, you know, it's the devil always trying to keep you under his control in some way, shape, or form. Anytime God is wanting to lift you higher, the devil wants to keep you dragged down. It's warfare. And uh, what you got to do is purpose in your heart, whatever it takes, Lord, I want to walk with you. I want to be free of this. I don't want to live like that. I don't want to be a half, you know, a Christian only knows half victory. I want to know everything in the way of blessings and freedom that you have for me. Just remember one last thing before we move on. A ministry that is not being opposed by the devil is probably a ministry that is not being anointed by God. So if you're, and that goes for the Christian life in general. If you're a Christian and you're saying to yourself, gee, I don't know what he's talking about. I don't know any oppression. I've never struggled like he's talking about. You have to ask yourself, are you really a threat to the devil? Is anybody who is walking in the spirit is going to be a threat to Satan, and Satan will target them. Satan will target them, you know? I get a kick out of Christians when I hear some Christians, not in our church, but I've heard this from different people. Yeah, you know, I told the devil the other day. I, you know, went after, I go after the devil and I rebuke him. And I'm like, are you nuts? Are you crazy? Leave the devil alone. Just walk with Jesus. Believe me, you walk with Jesus, the devil's going to try to find you. But you don't have to go looking for him, all right? Just walk with the Lord. Let the Lord lead you in the ministry he's called you to. And believe me, the devil will come looking for you because once you're a threat, he'll want to take you out. He'll want to oppose you. Keep your eyes on Jesus. He's the only one to give us victory. But verse 22. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Now, this is, hasn't gone well, okay? Uh, Moses, I'm calling you to be the deliverer you've always believed I had called you to be. Okay, Lord, you know. Now go to Pharaoh, tell him to let my people go. So he goes to the elders and says, I got great news. God called me to go to Pharaoh to let you guys go. Your slavery's coming to an end. Oh, what? that's wonderful. He goes to Pharaoh, things didn't work out so well, right? It's gotten worse, okay? So Moses returned to the Lord. Now, again, now Moses, it hasn't been a good ministry day, we like to say, okay? So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me? Yeah, Lord, I don't get it. You ever been there? Lord, you tell me to do this. I do it, and Lord, the whole thing blows up in my face. This is a cruel joke. What's going on here, right? Why have you sent me? Verse 23, for since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. Can I just say this? It isn't easy being a leader at times. All right? I mean, you want to help people by telling them to do what God has said. But often it seems that initially people are not helped, they're hurt. It's kind of like the pastor who finds out a husband in his church is cheating on his wife. So he goes to that man and confronts him and says, Look, you need to go to your wife and confess this if your marriage is going to move forward at all. So the guy listens to the pastor, goes to his wife, confesses it, and what happens? She blows up. 
She packs her bag. She moves out. She hires a lawyer to uh, divorce him. It's at that point as a pastor you feel like Moses. You tried to do the right thing, right? You did what you believed was right. You told him you had to fess up. You had to make this right. You can't be lying anymore. You got to confess it to your wife. That's what God wants. Because that's the only way your marriage is going to go forward. And now you, he's done that, and now she wants a divorce. It's hard being a leader at times. But what I have experienced over the years, is like the children of Israel are going to experience soon in our story here. Sometimes things don't work out well initially, but give it some time. I've seen many a wife who, after a while, cooled down, reconsidered, uh, sought counseling with her husband, and eventually the marriage was healed and became stronger than ever. The bottom line here is this, guys. When God tells us to do something, uh, and if it's a, a work that, you know, a minister or whatever it might be, initially, things might not go so well. Don't expect people to open their arms and everything, all the doors to fly open, and they, they throw a parade in your honor that you're here to serve God. The devil does not want to relinquish territory very easily. He's going to fight you. And initially, you might run into a lot of opposition, so much so you might think to yourself, Lord, have you really called me? If you've really called me, would things be this hard? Yeah, sometimes they will be. You have to know that God's called you. And listen, when you're ministering to somebody, you need to tell them what God has said in his word and not worry about how they're going to handle it or what the consequences may be. We cannot minister based on what may happen uh, how they might not receive it and be upset and turn on me. We have to love them enough to give them the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, right? To share with them what God has said, even though you may lose them as a friend, even though, you know, it may not go well, you still have to give them what God has said. That's what it means to be a servant of God. You just have to do it. Either that or it's like Paul said. If I, if I don't obey God, if I don't seek to be a servant of God, then I'm a man-pleaser. I can't be a man-pleaser. That's not ministry to God. i got to honor Him, okay? Chapter 6, well, backing up to verse 22 of chapter 5 again. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. Chapter 6, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will let them go. And with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Now, I want to bring something up here that I will revisit later on. But you're going to see how that every time Moses comes to Pharaoh, Pharaoh hardens his heart. And it sounds like God is saying, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he doesn't let my people go until I can really demonstrate my power that everyone would know that I'm God, okay? We're going to see from the Hebrew that it's, we're going to read, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. God told Moses to do this, confront Pharaoh, show him a miracle, but Pharaoh hardened his heart. And there's those people who believe that God kept hardening Pharaoh's heart because Pharaoh didn't have a free will. He was a puppet in the hands of God. But the Hebrew, and then finally it says, and God hardens, hardened Pharaoh's heart. And if you study the Hebrew, we'll bring in something more when we get a little farther down in the plagues. But every time Pharaoh hardened his heart, initially it was Pharaoh because of his stubbornness, the idea that who is your God? Uh, I'm the 
leader of the strongest nation on earth. Our God's are stronger than yours, so on and so forth. So every time Moses wanted, uh, told him that God had said that he was to do something or let the people go, Pharaoh hardened his heart. This went on several times until finally he says, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. We'll talk about this. Here's the idea, though, okay, that we have a free will. And we can choose to, to do what God has said or we can choose to disobey what God has said. And if we keep hardening our hearts and hardening our hearts, I'm talking about an unbeliever now primarily. An unbeliever who keeps hearing the truth and hardens their heart, hears the truth, hardens their heart, won't receive Christ. Every time they harden their heart, their heart gets a little harder. Until finally God says, okay, if that's how you want it, if that's how you want to exercise your free will, you've made your choice, I'll make your heart even more hard. Because I'm going to get glory from your life one way or another. And we can do this the easy way or we can do it the hard way. You can submit to me and I will use you and I will lift your life and, and I will bless you and the world will see that those who obey me are blessed of me. Or I can put a big circle around your life with a line through it and say, look at this joker. Look at how he's hardened his heart to me. He doesn't want to obey me, and now I've hardened his heart even more, and I want to use him as an object lesson to everyone else of what not to do in life. Because, you know, he who strives with his maker, well, it's not, it's not a good thing. Woe to him who strives with his maker is the idea. All right, never works out good for the one resisting God. Anyway, God will sometimes, though, in verse 1 of chapter 6, says to see, I will, now you shall see, what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand, he will let them go. God says, after I'm done with him, he'll let them go. All right? And with a strong hand, he will actually now, I'm going to put my hand so heavy on this guy. Not only will he let them go, he'll drive you out of his land, is the idea. But here's the thing. Sometimes God allows some suffering. And it's not necessarily because people are always obstinate or rebellious. Okay? But sometimes God will allow some suffering as a basis to show people that he's real and that he's almighty. I always think of, uh, of Lazarus. In fact, turn to John 11. Of course, you know that Jesus was very close to a family when he was uh, conducting his earthly ministry. It was two sisters and a brother, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And they lived in Bethany, which was on the other side of the Mount of Olives, about a Sabbath day journey from Jerusalem. So every time Jesus was in Jerusalem ministering, uh, often he would uh, withdraw to Bethany and spend the night uh, in the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, very close to them, loved them a great deal. And we read in John 11, verse 1, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sister sent to him to Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And you remember this story. He waits around a couple days there down by the Jordan, where his disciples are baptizing. And then he leaves and makes the two-day journey to Bethany. By this time, Lazarus has been dead and buried four days. Initially, when Martha and Mary hear that the Lord has come into town, uh, first it was uh, Mary that ran to him and kind of gently rebukes him. I'm sorry, it was Martha. You know, where were you, Lord? If you were here, my brother would not have died. You know, that kind of thing. And then, of course, uh, Mary comes and she falls at his feet and she chides him too because, you know, they, they send word, well, Lord, the one you love, Lazarus, your fr good friend is sick, thinking he'll come immediately. But he doesn't. And it waits till Lazarus actually dies. 
He said, well, what he, he said, though, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. Well, it's not unto ultimate death. It wouldn't result in Lazarus' death permanently. It was going to be that God was going to let him die so that Jesus could raise him and show his power to the whole region. All right? But it really drives some people up a wall when you say that God will sometimes use sickness for his glory because their theology says that all sickness is from the devil and God never uses sickness to get glory from. Well, I don't know. I don't know what Bible they're reading, but John 11, is right. it's right there. Sometimes God will allow his people to suffer trials, tribulation. Look at uh, uh, Pastor Saeed. Uh, last November was three years in captivity in Iran. Here's a man that is beaten regularly. I mean, nobody would want to go through that. This poor man uh, has been three years in, in Iranian prisons, beaten uh, unmercifully, constantly, and yet he has been used by God, from what I understand, to bring many of the other prisoners to Christ because of the way he's dealt with it. Would we have chosen that for ourselves? Would he have chosen that? Probably not. But when you're a spirit-filled Christian, you realize that sometimes God will put me in situations that in my flesh, and my humanness, I don't want to be there. But, you know, when I became a Christian, I told the Lord, my life is yours now. You can do with it whatever you want. And you know what? Sometimes God will hold us to that uh, in ways that we don't really want to go through certain things. But are we going to allow it to make us bitter or better? To use us as a light or to waste the opportunity? So back in Exodus chapter 6, again, verse 1, And the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Whenever you see that, it's the word Yahweh, okay? So, by, but by my name Yahweh, I was not known to them. Now, that's interesting because last time we met, we said that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did know God's name, Yahweh. In fact, we referenced several scriptures in the book of Genesis, Genesis 14, 22, chapter 15, verse 1, chapter 25, verses 21 and 2, chapter 28, verse 13, chapter 49, verse 18, where they all called God Yahweh. They all knew that was his name. And yet, it says here, God is saying, but they, by my name Yahweh, they did not know me. They only knew me as God Almighty or El Shaddai. So what's happening here? Well, here's what I believe, and there are many scholars who believe this, that the patriarchs did know God's name, Yahweh. They did know the word that represented his name. They just didn't, you know, he talks about by my name, Yahweh, they did not know me. That's a very kind of a deep, intimate knowledge. Like when Cain knew his wife and she bore a son. The idea is that, look, they knew intellectually what my name was, but they didn't really know me in a deep, personal way is the idea. I mean, yes, they understood he was God Almighty, El Shaddai, the one who made the heavens and the earth. But they didn't really know him as the personal God, Yahweh, the one who wanted to become to them anything they needed. That's what Yahweh, it's a verb, right? Uh, to be, to the, the becoming one, or I am. What do you mean, I am? Well, what does that mean? Well, I want to be to you whatever you need. 
That's why it's always coupled with a noun. Uh, Jehovah or Yahweh uh, to Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. Um, Yahweh Shalom, the Lord our peace. Whatever we need, God wants to become that to us. Of course, the greatest need we had was for salvation, and that's why God sent his son, Jehovah Shua, or Jesus, who became our price that he might uh, purchase our salvation. But let me just say this, guys. In relating it to us, to our culture, there's a lot of people that have grown up in church and know that God is Almighty God. That, and they believe He made heaven and earth, and they, they believe that. Yet they don't know Him personally or deeply or spiritually because they haven't been born again. Their entire knowledge of Him is intellectual. It's in their brain, right? They, they have head knowledge, but they have no deep personal relationship with Him. Because they're not born of the Spirit. You know, again, I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. I knew who God was. I knew his name. I believed he was the one who created the heavens and the earth. He was the almighty God. But I didn't know him personally. Because Jesus was not living in my heart personally through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, once I gave my heart to Jesus, that all changed. He moved in through the power of his Spirit. And I entered into a personal relationship with him, a deep intimate relationship with him that I had not never known before. That's the idea that's going on here. It's not that they didn't know God and his name and, and, that, and that kind of thing. They just did not have a deep personal relationship with him. It's kind of like uh, if you're a guy and, uh, you know, maybe you uh, saw a gal and you just, you know, didn't know her, but from a distance, you just know she was beautiful. You wanted to get to know her. Eventually, you met her. A relationship developed. And eventually, you married this gal. There's quite a difference between knowing who she was from a distance and now being her husband and having that very intimate relationship with her. That's the, that's the idea here. Israel, at this point now, is going to enter into a whole different kind of relationship with the Lord than they've known before. All right. uh, it's going to be a, a much deeper personal relationship that uh, up until this point they had not really known. Now here, as wonderful as that was for them back then, let me just say again that as a New Testament Christian, guys, we are blessed to have a level of intimacy with God that Moses never had, David never had, Daniel never had, none of the Old Testament saints ever had. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. You talk about having a personal relationship. We just talked about it. Uh, but what a difference, right? Even for us who are New Testament saints, what a difference in our relationship that we have than they had. You say, well, what is the main difference? Well, turn to Colossians 1. Look at verse 24. Paul says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you. Suppose I've been called into ministry by the Lord. I count it a privilege to suffer, to just get the word out, and to, and to strengthen you who are believers, right? According to the stewardship of, from God, which was given to me for you, to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations. Now, Paul's going to talk about something that no Old Testament saint really knew. This was a mystery. The word mystery there is mysterion in the Greek. 
And whenever you see the word mystery, it speaks not of something that was hidden or like we would think of a mystery, unknown. But in the, in the, Greek, the Greek word mysterion means something that was previously hidden or unknown, but now God has revealed. In the New Covenant, God has revealed something, Paul is saying, that the Old Testament saints never knew. What is it? He says, the mystery, verse 26, which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Here it is, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Peter tells us that Jesus Christ, God the Son, lives in us. When we get saved, we talked about that, right? Give your heart to Christ. Jesus comes inside through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And now God, we become a living temple. We are the temple, our body. God dwells inside of us. Peter said, this is such an incredible truth. Yeah, Paul says the Old Testament saints didn't know anything about this. But you know what Peter tells us? It's such an incredible thing that angels desire to look, look into it or to understand what... What is it like to have God living inside you? We think of angels as these tremendous beings. Of course they are. Powerful, intelligent, and so on. But no angel has God living inside of them. That is something that is unique to the church, a mystery that was hidden from the Old Testament saints, but has been revealed, as Paul is sharing it with the church, what sets us apart, what makes our relationship with God more intimate than anyone ever knew in the Old Testament is that God lives inside of us. I mean, we have the Lord inside of our hearts. You can't get closer than that, right? You can't get closer to God than that. It's incredible. So verse 2 again of chapter 6, Then God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai. But by my name, Lord, all capital letters are Yahweh, I was not known to them. Well, not known in a deep way. They knew the name, of course. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. And I have also heard the groanings of the children of Israel whom the Egyptians keep in bondage. And I, and I have remembered my covenant. And now, guys, God gives the seven I will promises of redemption. The seven I will promises of redemption, listen, sandwiched between two I am the Lord statements. Why is that important? Because, guys, a promise is only good. It's only as good as the one who makes it. Okay? That's why God says, I place my word even above my what? My name. And God is saying, look, as he's about to uh, make them seven promises, and, of course, they can take them to the bank, you might say, because it's God who is making these promises and it's impossible for God to lie. So here they are, verse 6. Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. Okay, now, here come the promises. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, 
And I will, number six, bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And number seven, I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. Amen. Now look, Egypt is a type of the world, right? There is coming a day when every one of these I will statements will be applied to God's people living on the earth during the tribulation period, when the Antichrist is persecuting God, the church will be gone, but the tribulation saints, those who get saved during the tribulation period, will be persecuted, just like the children of Israel were persecuted in Egypt. But God is saying through these promises here, they apply to a future generation during the tribulation period, that he said, I will, I will come down with a mighty hand. I'm going to pour judgments upon this world. I am going to redeem you from under the slavery of the world leader at that time, the Antichrist. I'm going to come to get you. You're going to live with me in my kingdom. These are all the I will promises of redemption to a future generation. As you study the book of Revelation, you see that very clearly. And as you read, listen, verses 6 to 8 now, as we focus on God's promises to Israel here, as you read verses 6 to 8, we see how, listen, how definitive God is in these seven promises that he's making to the children of Israel based on the covenant, of course, he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As you read these verses, there are no clauses or conditions that they had to fulfill that would allow for any replacement theology if they didn't measure up, right? You don't see any of that. Is there any conditional statements? I will if you do this. No, God just says, I will, I will, I will, I will, seven unconditional statements or promises of things he's going to do, seven-part unconditional promise he is making with the children of Israel. I love that. I love that because you know what? When it comes to our salvation, the same thing applies. God simply says, I will, I will, I, you receive my son, I will give you eternal life. I will make you my child. I will come for you someday. I will make you a part of my kingdom forever. There's no conditional clauses anywhere in that. But if, you know, if you don't, but if you don't measure up, you know, if you blow it, you have people that believe that you could live your whole life for Jesus faithfully, and if five minutes before you die you sin, you could be lost forever. One of the men who is involved in this kind of thinking, he is a, a Calvinist. Uh, in fact, one of the guys that uh, most of them look up to, um, he made the statement one day because he believes that the Sabbath is still in force for Christians. And if you break the Sabbath, you can go to hell. And the statement he made was, even if Billy Graham lived his whole life serving the Lord and brought millions to Christ, if he flew on a plane on the Sabbath and the plane crashed, he'd go to hell. Perfect love casts out fear. How could you have any kind of peace with a theology like that? I'd be a nervous wreck. That I would live my life for Christ my whole life, and just before I died, I'd blow it and be lost. I'm so thankful he took it out of our hands. You know, he, he's not saying seven you betters. It's seven I wills. Thank God for that, right? I can rest in that. That's a promise I can get behind and have peace in. Because it's not up to me. It's up to him, okay? 
Verse 9. So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel, but they did not heed Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. Now, you know, our heart goes out to the children of Israel. This had gone on for a long time, 400 years, that they had been enslaved now in Egypt, that they had been, you know, beaten down, worked like dogs. Uh, you imagine a life of slavery like this? In fact, I, I can't even imagine it. There's nothing to look forward to. There's no working your way up into a better situation. Every day you get up, it's the same thing. And you better do what you're supposed to do, otherwise you're beaten or killed. This is, this is the life that they had. And it, it went on for so long that even now that Moses has come and said that God is going to deliver them, initially they were excited, but now it looks like that's not going to work out. And so Moses spoke to them again, but they didn't heed Moses because they were in such anguish of spirit because of all the cruel bondage. Look, sometimes people are so locked in their circumstances and have suffered for so long without any hope of things changing that sometimes when God is, is finally ready to work, because everything, for everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, and God had a time when he was going to release these people. Just like it says, in the fullness of time, Jesus was born of a virgin. When God says it's time, it's time. But depending on how much time has gone before that, sometimes it's hard to believe God's going to really do something now. I mean, nothing has happened for so long, right? I mean, there's a lot of Christians who believe Jesus is coming. But they've been waiting for so long, and their lives are so hard. I'm thinking about Christians in third world countries who have really got at heart, you know? That some of them, you know, when they see the signs that seem to point to his coming, some of them have a hard time believing it's going to really happen. You know, I've seen women who have been married to unbelieving men. I've seen this several times before. And they prayed for their husbands, sometimes for 20 years, that God would save this man. Oh, Lord, save my husband. Oh, God, please save my husband. And then one day the guy comes home from work and says, Honey, I've just received Jesus as my Savior. Oh, get out of here. <laughs> Seriously. Oh, stop it. Yeah. No, I'm a Christian now. Yeah, right. You know, Can't bring yourself to believe that God has actually worked because it's been so, so long, right? Sometimes we, we get, you know, it's like when, when God sent the angel Gabriel to... Uh, uh, to Zechariah, remember? Him and Elizabeth had been wanting a child for many years, trying and trying, nothing. Now they're old, elderly. The angel shows up when Zechariah is offering incense in the temple and says, oh, Zechariah, your prayer's been heard. Your wife's going to conceive and she's going to bear a son that call his name John. Who is that? You know? Who's... <laughs> he, he didn't believe it because it had been so long. You know, the point is, sometimes we can pray for a thing. Be faithful in your prayers. But realize that, you know what, just because it's taken a long time and you haven't seen an answer yet doesn't mean the answer is not coming soon. Keep hanging in there. Keep praying. Verse 10. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the children of Israel go out of his land. And Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, The children of Israel have not heeded me. Lord, I'm not in good terms with them anymore. How then shall Moses, look, your people aren't even listening to me. You expect Pharaoh to listen to me? Already I'm feeling sorry for Moses, all right? 
Israel has not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. And again, Moses is saying, Lord, you know I can't talk very well. I keep telling you that. You know, probably he stuttered or something, right? I guess Moses feels like if he was eloquent, eloquent uh, Pharaoh would listen to him. That's not really the case, okay? Just like we think, if I just had all the facts at my fingertips and I could rattle off all the Bible facts and the historical and archaeological and manuscript evidence, certainly people would get saved. Not necessarily so. Good to know what you believe. But it's the power of God, right? Moses was thinking it was all dependent on him, his fact that he doesn't speak very well. No. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, verse 13, and gave them a command for the children of Israel and for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now, Moses at this point inserts a genealogy to record, that he records in verses 14 to 25. Of course, Moses is writing this, okay, this book, as he did uh, the first five books of the Bible. But now he adds at this point a genealogy to, that he records in verses 14 to 25. I'm not going to read it to you. I was looking at it today thinking, what is the point? Uh, I can't pronounce most of these names. I'll let you wrestle with that. I just want to tell you this, though. The genealogy starts out by listing the first two sons of Jacob, Reuben and Simeon. But then when he gets to the third son, Levi, which is, the, of course, the, the family that Moses and his brother and sister descended from, okay, uh, at that point, Moses stops and lists the sons, the grandsons, and the great-grandsons of Levi in order to give us a complete genealogy of Moses and Aaron, who now take center stage in the narrative. All right, verse 26 these are the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the children of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their armies. These are the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring out the children of Israel from Egypt. These are the same Moses. We're the guys, okay? Three times he's convincing his audience. Hey, it's us, all right? Now, verses 28 to 30 really should belong uh, at the beginning of chapter 7. So let me read them with chapter 7. And it came to pass on the day that the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I am the Lord. Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips, and how shall Pharaoh heed me? So the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your prophet. What is going on here? Well, very simply this, a prophet was somebody that God spoke to, and then the prophet would speak to the people. Now, Moses said, Lord, I don't speak very good. Okay, so you want me to go to Pharaoh and be a representative, but I don't, I don't speak so good. God, God said, okay, look, you're going to be like me to Pharaoh, but you're not going to speak to Pharaoh. You're going to speak to Aaron. He'll be kind of like your prophet, and then Aaron can speak to Pharaoh, is the idea, just so you understand, okay? Verse 2, you shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron your brother shall speak to Pharaoh and uh, to send the children of Israel out of his land. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my, my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you, so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people and the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. Now, if you read this superficially, it seems that 
you know, the Egyptians are God's fall guys, okay? Uh, that God wants to use to show himself that he's a mighty God through these Egyptians, okay? Uh, yes, they put the children of Israel through a lot of harsh treatment, the Egyptians did, but as you read this, it sounds like God needed some patsies to beat up so that, you know, to prove how strong he was. Well, you probably would not realize from just reading the text is that every plague of the ten, every plague of the ten was poured out on one of the gods of Egypt. I'll just read to you Exodus 12, verse 12. You can also read Numbers 33, verses 1 to 4. But in Exodus 12, verse 12, we read, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. Listen. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. So these ten plagues, guys, were not random judgments. They were specific, they, I should say, specifically targeted the deities worshipped in Egyptian culture. In fact, one of my favorite authors, James Montgomery Boyce, is with the Lord now. But uh, he explains this. Let me read it to you. He said, in order to understand these plagues, we need to understand that they were directed against the gods and goddesses of Egypt and were intended to show the superiority of the God of Israel over the Egyptian gods. There were about 80 major deities in Egypt all clustered about the three great natural forces of Egyptian life, the Nile River, the land, and the sky. It does not surprise us, therefore, that the plagues God sent against Egypt in this historic battle follow this three-force pattern. The first two plagues were against the gods of the Nile, the next four were against the land gods, and the final four plagues were against the gods of the sky, culminating in the death of the firstborn, end quote. Just to give you a little background as to what God is doing. Now listen, once again, in Scripture, Egypt is a type of the world. And in the book of Revelation, it tells us that God will someday replicate these judgments and bring them against the whole world during the tribulation period. You can read about that in Revelation 16 and so on. All right, Exodus 7, verse 6. Then Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded them, so they did. And Moses was 80 years old, when, and Aaron 83 years old, when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Show a miracle for yourselves, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh, and let it become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went in to Pharaoh, and they did so, just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. Now, if you remember in chapter 4, when God was calling Moses to go to Pharaoh, and Moses said, well, why should Pharaoh believe me? Remember he said, well, stick your hand inside your garment, pulled it out, it was leprous, put it back in and pulled it out, it was normal. He said, throw your rod down on the ground. And when he did, it became a serpent. The word for serpent in verse 4 is the common Hebrew word for serpent. It's a different word for the word serpent here, though. As when, as when Aaron cast his rod down before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. That is the Hebrew word tannin, tannin. And it speaks of the serpent, listen, that adorned the headpieces of, that all the pharaohs wore. This, guys, was the symbol of Egypt, symbol of its power, the tannin or the cobra snake. You've seen that, no doubt, in uh, you know, museums, that if you've gone there to look at any kind of Egyptian artifacts, the, the, the serpent 
the cobra snake, that was the symbol of Egypt's power in a sense. Verse 11, But Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers. And so the magicians of Egypt, they, did, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For every man threw down his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. And Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. Now listen, this was not the first plague. It says, one historian said, When Aaron's staff became a serpent, and then swallowed the staff serpents of Pharaoh's magicians, God was providing a graphic sign of what was to come. In other words, the God of the Hebrews was going to consume Egypt with all its glory. Now listen. Before we go on, we need to uh, stop and uh, deal with this uh, issue here, okay? I think it's a pretty important issue. And that is, did the wise men, sorcerers, and magicians of Egypt use illusion to make it appear that their rods became serpents? Or did they have the power to actually change their rods into real serpents? A lot of good commentators say, no, they use sleight of hand, uh, parlor tricks, you know, just illusion, Okay. Like you would see some of these illusionists, they're not, they don't have any power. They're just, they just know how to make you think something's happening when it's not really happening. Good commentators believe that. Um, I don't personally believe that. I believe that these men had real supernatural demonic power. Just like the Antichrist is going to have when he finally comes on the scene. It says in 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 9 to 11, he will have the power to do miracles, what Paul calls lying signs and wonders. Why are they lying signs and wonders? Because they're real miracles that will be done to deceive. Okay? To deceive. And just as the Antichrist will have real supernatural power. In fact, the same word Paul uses of the Antichrist, signs and wonders, same Greek words used of Jesus' signs and wonders. Although Jesus did miracles that pointed to the truth, whereas the Antichrist will do miracles that will lead people away from the truth. But I believe that the same demonic powers that will, will be working in the Antichrist were working in these men back in Moses' day. In fact, in fact, Paul the Apostle used these Egyptian magicians to warn God's people. Then the last days, Satan would use deceivers, false teachers, to attack God's truth and listen, to attack God's people by imitating the works of God. Real miracles, again, that will be designed to deceive. Paul even named two of these court magicians that Moses was dealing with back in our text. 2 Timothy 3.8, he says, Now Janus and Jambres resisted Moses. So do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapprove concerning the faith. And Paul is talking about people who will be around in the last days and will have supernatural powers, who will call themselves men of God, but you know what? Their powers will not be given to them by God. They'll be rooted in the devil's power. We even see a lot of this going on today. I personally think a lot of these healing ministries are nothing but phoniness. I can't tell you, though, that every person who practices a healing ministry uh, is not using some power to heal people. We know that even in the occult world, psychic healers have been around for a long time. And they will use what we know to be demonic powers, to perform surgeries, to heal people. But again, it's all the power of the devil because these folks that do this do not preach the truth. They, you know, they talk about all kinds of things that 
lead people away from Jesus Christ. Okay? But um, just as these guys were back in Moses' day, we're going to have deceivers come, like Janice and Jambres, who will resist the truth, who will resist, resist the true men and women of God who are preaching the truth, and uh, will even do uh, lying signs and wonders. And aren't people ripe for this? People are so gullible and undiscerning, they don't know the word of God. You know, didn't Jesus say, you know, if it were possible, even the elect would be deceived by some of these people? Their powers would be so incredible. See, I'm telling you what? Beforehand, the word of God will keep you from error. Uh, but if you don't know the word, you're going to be susceptible. Now, these judgments upon Egypt, all except for number 10, the death of the firstborn, are in three sets of three. Kind of like the judgments that God pours out upon the whole world in the book of Revelation, which will also be in three sets of seven, though. Okay, the seals, trumpets, and bold judgments that we see in Revelation. Three sets of judgments, only at that time there'll be seven judgments to each set. But here we see that there are three sets of three. And uh, the first two in each group of three comes with a warning. So God warns before he brings the judgment, but the last one of the three comes without warning, without warning. But uh, by the plagues, God was judging again the gods of Egypt and showing himself to be superior to them. Again, gets back to what Pharaoh said, who is the God of Hebrew, Hebrew slaves that I should obey him? Oh, God's about ready to show him. So we'll leave it here tonight, and we'll pick it up next week, and we'll look at the ten plagues. And um, there's a lot going on that we want to bring out. Okay, so we will get into that. God willing, next time. Father, we thank you, Lord, that, well, you are the great almighty God, El Shaddai, who has condescended to us that we might know you, and not just know of you, but to know you personally, to know you deeply. And Lord, we thank you that you are, are, are the one who wants to become to us whatever we need. And even after we get saved, we can come to you boldly anytime we have a need, anytime we need your help. You never turn us away. You're never too busy. We thank you, Father, that this relationship, well, we call you Daddy, Abba, because we're your children. That's a wonderful relationship. And we thank you, Lord, that our Savior lives in our hearts. And... Um, that we know you in a way that Moses or Isaiah or Jeremiah or any of the Old Testament saints, they never knew you like we know you. And thank you, Lord, for that. So, Lord, we ask you to continue to bless these studies for your glory. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.